Well, have you ever had one of those weeks where you think to yourself, well, at least it can't get any worse, but then it does. You ever have one of those weeks? Those weeks where you wonder if there's such a thing as superstition and you somehow broke every mirror in the funhouse at the carnival? Those weeks where you think that the only thing that will help is to curl up into bed in the fetal position, and that is very hard for a guy who's six foot ten to do, I tell you, but some weeks are like that. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Raise your hand if this week was a week like that for you. Go ahead. Go ahead and raise it. Okay, there's four of us that are being honest. That's good. These weeks are hard weeks to raise our head and lift our eyes toward heaven. And it's hard, too, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we live within one another's lives and we almost get a little bit of vicarious trauma in seeing one another go through tough things. And so it's hard. Because a healthy body of Christ is one that weeps together and one that rejoices together. And so often I find that when 95% of the church is doing really well, even if 5% is going through tough things because we are a healthy family and we care for one another, it's hard. It's hard with kids. It's hard with marriage. It's hard with our jobs. It's hard ministering to people who sometimes don't want to hear truth and fight you when you're trying to help them. As I looked at the text that we are moving into for this week, I have to admit and confess to you that I let out a large sigh. It's not because there's anything wrong with the text. We know that all of God's word is profitable, it's useful, it's helpful to us in growing in sanctification, it's helpful to us in seeing who God is. And praise God that our text today is not talking about sexual ethics per se, like it was a couple weeks ago, or the fact that you're excluded from the assembly if you have crushed testicles like it was a week ago, right? Luckily, we've gotten through all of those texts, and those are hard texts to read. But the reason I sighed was because we have come to the section of Deuteronomy that is full of miscellaneous laws that are short, concise, and many. And the intention of these laws is awesome. In them, we see the heart of God and the intention of God's people to proclaim and model his heart to the world around them. We see a holy God, and we see him calling for a holy people. And yet, I must confess to you that I struggled this week as I looked at these laws and began to break them down. I saw this amazing truth that God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy too. But surrounding my study in the background and resounding in my ears the entire week was the knowledge that so many of us in this body are going through hard things. Life circumstances, painful brokenness, relational hurt, and so much of it is not because of choice. It's just because life sometimes stinks. Can I get a hearty amen? In both my pastoral meetings and my secular counseling meetings on Monday and Tuesday and my seminary classes this week, I have found myself heartbroken, disillusioned, and feeling hopeless in the face of the trials that this world brings. And I found myself asking the Lord, Lord, does your plan work? What is happening? Now, hopefully that's not discouraging to you, but encouraging to you that your pastor who sits in the word of God all week long sometimes gets discouraged too. And that life is hard. And so as I studied this week, I found myself crying out for God to speak to me, even through these lists of laws to give me some semblance of hope rather than another teaching to call us to holiness. That's not bad to call us to holiness. That's what the word does. But at the same time, I felt a little bit tired. Well, God is good. Amen? He is a good father and he does not disappoint. And in reading through scripture, 
I didn't have to break it down into my opinion. I didn't have to do what's called eisegesis or read my opinion into the Word. I broke it down and looked at it, what we're learning today, and even in exegesis, in unpacking this text, I saw hidden in the midst of His commands this week to His people the faint glimmer of the ultimate hope of restoration that God is working towards. You see, that's what we're to be as His people. We're to be a faint glimmer to the world of what the eventual fullness of restoration looks like. See, I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty cloudy mirror of God's glory to the world. And what we can do to the world is not show them the fullness of Jesus, only Jesus can do that, but together as we go through the trials and tribulations, as we show who God is, even in those hard times, we can show them that faint glimmer. And that faint glimmer, quite honestly, is so powerful that it will draw people the kindness of Jesus. Because if they saw the fullness of God, you know what happens in the Bible. All anybody ever does when they see the fullness of God is describe the floor that they're looking at because they're face down. And so a faint glimmer is a good thing. Well, our text today, as we're going through Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 25, I'm going to look at it and exegete it and unpack it. And we're going to look at it from a very practical and applicable place. But we will also look at it as the uh, look at these, these uh, verses and these rules as a congruent whole. And what we will see in them, I believe, is the picture of the worldly system and all that God is fighting against and has been victorious over. And so this morning, I want to remind myself and all of us as a church this truth. Take heart. Keep the faith. God has overcome the world. Take heart. Keep faith. God has overcome the world. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 23, starting in verse 15. And the first thing that we're going to see here, the first thing that you can write down as the first main point is this. It shouldn't be shocking to you if you've been going through uh, Deuteronomy with us, is God commands His people to be contrary to the system of the world. God commands his people to be contrary to the system of the world. Now, not just contrarians, because often we are good at that as Christians, where we're just contrary to everything, but contrary to the ways of the world and the system of the world. As with most of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the people of Israel a direct set of commands that will cause them to exemplify the holiness of the Creator God as they go into this new land by living out a way of life that is contrary to the people groups around them that worship false pagan deities. Israel was supposed to be a contrasting people. And these five commands are no different. They could be summarized, quite honestly, as be holy and do not be like your pagan neighbors. Okay, we're done for the day. Everybody go home. Be holy and do not be like your pagan neighbors. You think Deuteronomy is a little bit repetitive? I think we need to hear that often on repeat. But a closer look at these rules will yield a similarity between all five. And you see, some commentators have seen these similarities, and one commentator rightly titled this section, God's Command for a Considerate People. These are laws that serve to keep the people from taking advantage of one another. And they do so by breaking down five of the main ways that humans take advantage of one another. And so the system of the world that we will see here, the system of the world, first of all, takes advantage of us. And let's take a look here at verse 15 and we'll see the first way. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. 
you shall not wrong him. In this command, we see God's people are to respect the humanity of the one who has been a servant or a slave. God's people were not to take advantage of one another in terms of work, in terms of labor. Now, this is still a fight in 2019, isn't it? Humans taking advantage of one another in their work, in their service. Now, as we've talked about previously, we've, uh, we have to read this word slavery or servant. We have to read it in the context of the rest of Deuteronomy because our history as Americans oftentimes brings a lot of things into this word. We have to look back at the laws of freedom that grant freedom to servants every six years. We have to look back at the laws that allow a servant to stay in the service of a master that is honorable and caring and good because uh, indentured servitude in that day was very much a thing that was basically like work. It was like you being employed by someone else. It wasn't always what we place into it. And so what these other sections in Deuteronomy and the rest of the Torah speak to us is that the institution of servitude in ancient Israel was not in the same place as the blight of slavery and human trafficking that we have over the history of our nation. So we need to be careful to not totally read that in. Now that being said, it was still enslavement or indentured servitude. And so what it, we look here and we see what is God's heart towards it. And I think that we need to underline and highlight this section because what God does here and what he aims to do throughout most of the Torah is curb enslavement, curb slavery where possible, and point it in a direction that leads to abolition. Remember, he is the God of the Exodus. That's the first thing he's really known as besides creator God. He is the God of the Exodus. He's the God that heard the cries of the people and freed them because he fights for the oppressed. That is God's heart. You serve a God who fights for those who are oppressed. And at the same time, he knew that in that day and age, servitude would exist, and so he tries to legislate it in the most humane terms possible, hoping for its eventual removal, knowing that when he comes to rule and reign, it will be completely gone. But here we get his true feelings on the matter. If one has escaped his master, presumably because he was mistreated, then you shall not send him back. You shall do him no wrong and give him his freedom. Dear brothers and sisters, I think being in 2019, we can lose the thrust of how important this section is. I cannot emphasize to you strongly enough how earth-shattering this kind of a law was in the days of Moses. Let me read to you three, or excuse me, two laws from the well-known Code of Hammurabi, which was a contemporary law text of the day. This was a law text in another people group. Here's one law. If a feudal lord has helped either a male slave or a female slave to escape through the city gate, he shall be put to death. Another law. If a feudal lord has harbored in his house either a fugitive male or female slave and has not brought him forth at the summons of the police, that householder shall be put to death. See the difference? The Hebrews had a whole different view on the matter. Now this, the Code of Hammurabi, was typical Servants were seen not as people, but as property. And what this Hebrew law did was give back the personhood to the oppressed servant. It gave them a place of equality and care that was not present elsewhere in the world at the time. It clearly stated that God's people, under God's rule, in God's kingdom, are to treat one another with respect and not take advantage of one another in the form of indentured servitude, not take advantage of one another in the form of employment that is dishonest or unjust. For the first time in history, you see in this text, the worker was given his honor and value. 
God's people are those who give refuge to the oppressed, to the disadvantaged, and to the worker that is ill-treated and taken advantage of. Well, not only does the system of the world take advantage of one another's work and God's people are to be contrary to that, but we also see that the world definitely takes advantage of one another's sexuality. Take a look there at verse 17. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. The wages of a dog is an idiom that refers to a male prostitute. And so the idea here is that God's people are to have nothing to do with prostitution or taking advantage of one another sexually. It was well known in the ancient world that it it was a well-known tradition and habit of the ancient world in other cultures other than the Hebrews to misuse sexuality within religious contexts. What everybody wanted in that day was very similar to what everybody wants in this day, prosperity, success, and wealth. And the way you did that in ancient Near East mindset was to try and get the gods on your side so that they gave you fertile crops and they gave you personally fertility to have children to harvest those crops. That was the idea. And so these were seen as blessings of the gods. And if the gods were not pleased, they would curse the land with barrenness. They would curse people with barrenness. And so many groups developed cultic rituals within their, their uh, places of worship which utilized prostitution. But this, as you can tell, hopefully you can tell, is completely against the heart of the God of the Bible. I don't think I really needed to say that, but just because I'm going online, I figured I probably would cement that, right? Verse 18 speaks to the situation where it may not be a cultic prostitution, but prostitution in general. So the first half is no cultic prostitution. The second half is no prostitution in general. It's a regulation that says that the temple will not accept any tithe or gift that comes from the work of sexual exploitation. God did not want the temple associated with his name, enabling an evil institution that objectifies men and women for sexual use. To do so is an abomination to God. The world wants to take advantage of one another in labor and in sexuality, but these things are abominations to God. Well, third... What we see is that the world desires to take advantage of one another's finances. This section should be highlighted for us as Americans, and you'll see why in just a moment. At first glance, this is going to be an interesting statement, but let's just take a look at it here in uh, verse 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Quick question, what would happen to our economy as a nation if we stopped charging interest? our entire nation and wealth is built on a bubble, vapor, called interest. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now again, at first glance, this seems a preferential statement. It seems hypocritical. Don't charge interest to your Jewish brothers, but go ahead and charge interest to foreigners. But further study and looking at the context of the Torah is that there's a clear statement that God's people are not to take advantage of one another financially, nor are they to take advantage of the sojourner. Any suggestion that God is into taking advantage of the sojourner or the foreigner is discounted by a simple reading of the Old Testament, Multiple statements, even here within Deuteronomy, say that Israel was to care for the sojourner and not take advantage of them. 
they're reminded often, you were sojourners, you were foreigners in Egypt. So you need to take care of those who come to you for refuge. So there must be something else in the works here. It can't just be a preferential treatment. What many commentators agree on is the possibility that the majority of the foreigners that the Israelites would come into contact with were tradesmen or traveling businessmen that would come to them for the explicit purpose of trading. They were in the business, in other words. But for the overall point here, Israel needed to see the common heritage and mutual fate that would come by causing one another to fall into massive debt. By causing one another to create this unjust situation where one person is owed and the other person is enslaved to that debt. The people and their fortunes were linked and so it would harm all of them and the land that they were going to conquer if they performed what was called usury or the unfair charging of extremely high interest rates just to keep someone indebted. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Extremely high interest God's people are not to take advantage of one another financially, but the world does such a good job of that for us, doesn't it? The world, the system of the world, takes advantage of one another's work, of one another's sexuality, of one another's finances. It also takes advantage of one another's trust. Let's take a look there at verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. This section is dealing with vows made to God. Now, at first glance, it seems focused on telling the truth to God, which is a good thing. Just to be clear, you should always tell the truth to God. And here's the catch. If you don't, he already knows you're lying, right? So that shouldn't be that, you know, that should be pretty obvious for us. But the days of Moses were not that dissimilar to our own day in this context. So quiz time. When someone wants to get someone else to believe them in our culture, okay, you ready for question answer here? When someone wants to get someone else to believe them in our culture, whether they are a religious person or not, what do they say? I swear to God that I'm telling you the truth. We have non-believers swear on Bibles in the courtroom. I vow to God. Vows in other cultures are common ways of manipulation. We do it in our culture as well. Vows are made to God and yet not kept. In doing so, we unjustly wrap the Creator God into our manipulation of one another. Now, we've talked at length in past teachings about how this is rampant in the church, and I honestly think that the church is worse than the world sometimes. Because in church subculture, we unknowingly have gotten so amazingly good at Christian ease. You know what I mean, Christian ease? In the church, whenever we want to put something forth in a way that is the final word and trumps all other opinions, that shuts down any counsel towards us, or tells other people, I don't want to hear your opinion, I'm going to do it anyway, we wrap God's name into it often and we use phrases like, God told me, God gave, gave me peace, God didn't give me peace. It's as if we have that secret bat phone to Jesus that we've talked about before. And for those who are younger Christians, that disciples them in a horrific way because they think to themselves, why don't I have a bat phone to Jesus? That person must be so holy. That's why you guys don't hear me use that phrasing often because I have the same lack of a bat phone that you do. It's called prayer. We all use it, and God hears all of us. It doesn't matter if we're clergy or not. 
Now, these are not innately bad phrases. So if you're a person who was brought up in the church and it is natural for you to say these things, I don't want you to walk out of here with condemnation today because it might just be how you were brought up and you have no intention or conscious use of it for these purposes. And so I want you to know I'm not speaking to you because these are not innately bad phrases. And often God does speak through his word and the body that surrounds us. And so sometimes we do hear from God and it's shorthand to say God told me when we got it from his word. Often God does help guide us with having peace or not. But the real question that we need to ask ourselves in those moments is how assured are we when we use these statements that we are correctly characterizing God? How sure are we when we use these statements that we are correctly characterizing God? We need to ask if it's used for the purpose of spiritual one-upmanship, which I think sometimes happens in the church and we need to be careful of it. Well, the world does the same thing, but they do it in order to take advantage of one another's trust. And this is such an important topic that Jesus himself dealt with it in the midst of his law giving in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.33, he says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. So in those days, they'd say, I swear to Jerusalem. I swear by heaven. I swear by earth. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And you might notice in your footnote that it says the evil one. In other words, when we say things that we know we're not going to keep, when we don't keep our word, we're siding with the worldly system and the one who runs it as opposed to the one who is truth. It's such an interesting thing that I think I even fall into often, making promises that I can't keep. Side note, parents, that's a big one. I notice that with my kids all the time. Let's be honest with our kids and not promise things we can't deliver. I've noticed that a lot in parenting. Well, God's people are to be those who do not take advantage of one another's trust. Lastly, what we have in Deuteronomy 23 is that the system of the world takes advantage of one another's generosity. And just as with the other pieces, God's people are to be contrary and different than this. Take a look at verse 24. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. The context here is around the idea that gleaning small bits of harvest was a way for God to care for those who may not have food, uh, food to eat, or may be poverty-stricken. We can think of the story of Ruth and Naomi gleaning from the harvest. We can think of Jesus and his disciples walking through the fields, grabbing heads of wheat. But Moses stated, and Moses states here, that God draws the line at trying to make a profit trying to take more than your fair share. So those of you uh, that come to our agape meals and you kind of shove stuff in your bag, this is talking to you. That's a joke, but not really. This is a person who takes advantage of another person's generosity. Rather than taking what you need, you take what you want for selfish reasons. And in so doing, what you're doing is you're saying, I am more important than the other, which is contrary to Jesus Christ himself who we follow and who is our king, who laid down his life and did not count himself as better than the other. In fact, he sacrificed his life for the other. To do so, to take, uh, not based on need here, 
moves from accepting another's generosity to literally stealing from them, putting a sickle to another's grain. This is not from God's heart of generosity, but from Satan's heart of thievery and selfishness. And so God's people are to be different. And so we see here that God's people are not to take advantage of one another in these areas, labor, sexuality, finances, trust, or generosity. And in these five, taken as a whole, we see this worldly system of how the world takes advantage of us. God's people are to deal justly with one another. We're to be a considerate people and for one another and for those that we draw to the kindness of Jesus, we are to be a refuge. The church is to be a refuge. That's why I find that people who go out into the world, many of you who live your life in the world every day, you're not shocked sometimes by the heartlessness of people outside the church. But then if someone inside the church takes advantage of you, man, it is destructive, isn't it? And we must realize that that's a fragile thing, that we as God's people, we are called to be a refuge for one another and for those we draw into the kingdom of Christ. We're supposed to show them that we're contrary to the world. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but when we make mistakes, when we unknowingly take advantage, we need to own up to it and admit it and confess it. And the immediate application of this, as we look at these, it's to take stock of your own life and our own body of Christ. We need to ask, is there anyone within this church to whom I need to confess and repent in any of these ways? Maybe you've taken advantage of someone's generosity in the church. Maybe you promised to do something for someone and then let them down and you didn't own up to it. Whatever the case, we need to take stock of these items and bring our lives into alignment. Amen? And the reason is, is because God commands his people to be contrary to the system of the world. In so doing, we show the world how the kingdom of God is opposed to the kingdom of the world. But now that we've unpacked the meaning of this text, there may be a few of us in this room that are thinking of people we need to go to and confess that we've been inconsiderate, that we have taken advantage of them. And those of you who do that, man, communion is a wonderful time to do that. But for the most part, I look around this room and I see a group of people that are doing their level best to love one another, that are trying so hard to be different than the world. Man, I am so thankful to be part of this church. A few weeks ago, I said uh, in the, the sermon that, man, there are like six or so issues of, of confrontation and, and conflict going on. And man, within one week, those things were taken care of because you guys are an obedient people who want to follow Jesus. I look around this room and I see people who aren't really stepping in. And, and honestly, this may not even apply to you today. So what can we take of it? What can we take from this text today for the rest of us? Well, if we look at the mirror image of these commands, we see that these commands speak clearly of the contrasting worldly system, a system to which the majority of humans cling and in which each and every human is only looking out for themselves, one in which employers and corporations grow and profit on the backs of their workers who can often hardly make a living, one in which human beings made in the likeness of God are turned into sexual objects and dehumanized at every turn. A system in which banks and lenders charge exorbitant interest to keep millions of Americans in massive debt. One in which a person's word is no longer their bond, but lying is expected to the point that mistrust is a standard operating procedure and people wonder if they can count on anyone. And the world is a system in which gener generous, uh, being generous leads to the foregone conclusion that you will be taken advantage of by those looking for your naivete. Day in and day out, you and I live in a world in which the majority is trying to take advantage. And if we are not careful, we will fall to the siren song of self-protection and isolation as a strategy to defend ourselves. 
But that is not God's heart for us, nor is it useful in proclaiming his heart to the world. And so, as I wrestled with the weariness of the world in my studying this week, and the fact that so many of you are getting hit, hit head on like a Mack truck with this brokenness that is the worldly system, I was reminded of two truths that Jesus taught us as we encounter the world. The first truth that we must know as we encounter the world day in and day out, and the brokenness in our own marriages and our parenting and everything else, is this truth, that Jesus promised us that we would encounter trouble in this world. Jesus promised us that we would encounter trouble in this world. When the world is raging hard against us, I find that I can be overcome by it and cry out, God, where are you? I may even believe the lie for a moment that God has forgotten me and left me in the cold because of trial and tribulation. But dear flock, we need to remember that trial, tribulation, and heartache are not a shock to God. They are the result of mankind's rebellion against God and they are ingrained in a fallen creation until all is restored. And in fact, God was so not surprised by them that he promised us that they would come. It wasn't just a maybe. He promised us that trials and pain would come. Turn with me to John 15 in your Bibles. John 15, uh, starting in verse 18. John 15, 18 through 25 says this, if the world hates you, that's so encouraging. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world. <coughs> Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. In other words, he is not their king. They have a different king. The prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. If I had not come and spoken to them, Jesus said, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You ever feel like that? Like the world is beating you up and you're like, what did I ever do to you? <laughs> what did I ever do? And the world hates us without a cause because we're linked to Jesus and it fights against us. Spiritual battle is a real thing and it happens in the daily life that we lead. Now realize that when John talks about the world, he is speaking of the system that is led by the enemy of God, which is based on all that we've been discussing, selfishness, self-protection, self-interest. And this system is a kingdom that contains many people all engaged in lives based off of raising themselves above everyone else. And because we exist in a world that is diametrically opposed to the system of the king we serve, we can expect the majority of our life will be pushing against the grain. We follow a king who values love and sacrifice above all else. And so if we follow him, we will run into trial and tribulation in a world that values the exact opposite. And this is the point of God's people, that while the world that surrounds us is devouring one another and fighting against itself in envy, violence, greed, and selfishness, we would be a people that live according to a different set of rules. You know, it's been so interesting watching this last week. I am not into politics. You guys know that. I do not look to a president for king, uh, kingship or being a savior. But it's so interesting because for the last however many number of years, we've heard about how the Republicans are so bad because all they did was fight against one another and Trump is this big jerk. And so 
here we go, guys. The democratic debates are coming. Maybe we can finally see some people who have consideration for one another and can live lives out in lack of hypocrisy. And what do we get? The same exact thing. That's the world. And I don't judge them for it. I expected it. (laughs) And when the Republicans debate, they'll do the same thing. And when the Democrats debate, they'll do the same thing. The world's broken. It's fighting against itself, devouring itself. And we are called to be a people that live according to a different set of rules. In so doing, we stand brightly as beacons, calling people to a kingdom in which they are not taken advantage of, but in which they are loved and respected and cared for. Dear brothers and sisters, do not lose heart when it feels like you are pursuing Christ, and yet it feels like you are going against the grain or that the world stands in opposition to you. In fact, it may not be that you're doing something wrong. You may actually be doing something right. If you examine your life and you see that you are pursuing Christ and his kingdom, and yet life seems hard, know that you are in good company. The world goes against you and hates you because it goes against your King and Lord. That is why we can look to Jesus and know that he weeps with us. He is not the cause of the brokenness. He is near to the brokenhearted, even as the psalm section this morning spoke to us. And the prophet Isaiah calls Jesus the man that was despised by the men of the world. He was disrespected, rejected. And he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus is not the one inflicting pain and trial upon us. The gospel message is that he was the one who entered into the broken system, the broken darkness of this world to fight on your behalf. He gave himself over to the world, to the system of darkness, so fully that he allowed himself to be taken advantage of it, uh, by it, even to the point of death. He took on your part and my part in the worldly system and became the ransom to free us from it. And this is what Paul says in the opening of his letter to the Galatian church. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. But not only did he die as the ransom to set us free from the enslavement of our sinful nature in the midst of the evil world, he also resurrected. Amen? And in doing so, Jesus proved that this worldly system that suppresses, oppresses, and takes advantage of its people will not be able to hold us down forever. You see, the second truth that I was reminded of as I was confronted with the darkness of this world in our section in Deuteronomy and how different we are to be is this, that Jesus promised us that he has overcome the world. It isn't just a matter of, hey, My people, go and live differently. White-knuckle it. Because that's impossible. It was the truth that one would come days after Moses, a long time after Moses, one named Jesus, who would come and step into the system and show that you can live contrary to it. And even if it overcomes you, you're still victorious. You are still the one that will land on your feet. Look with me at John 16, 32, just a little bit to the right of where we were at. In John 16, 32, Jesus was talking to his disciples and telling them that upon his departure, they will be scattered and will probably despair. I can't even imagine how fearful and brokenhearted they were, how much they thought that the world had overcome them, that Jesus had lost. 
They probably felt far more heartache and far more disillusionment than I felt this week or you have felt. But their sorrow, Jesus said, will be turned into joy. How can that be? How can that be if God's people themselves are the ones beaten down and it's hard sometimes to live contrary to the world? Well, he tells them here in John 16, 32. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, of anyone that has ever walked this earth, had reason to believe that the world had overcome him. Alone on the cross, completely innocent, crucified as the atoning sacrifice for the sin of mankind. And yet, his statement to the disciples was that in this act of sacrifice, he had actually overcome the world. And his resurrection, three days later, proves his victory. And man, this is something that we must remember. Dear church, it is very simple. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. Amen? Amen. Say it with me. Jesus died for my sins. Three days later, he rose again, proving his victory. This is the gospel that we know. So when you go to the people around you and they ask you, what is the gospel? You say, let me tell you the gospel that I know. Jesus died for my sins. And three days later, he rose, proving he was victorious over my sin and yours. Do you want to be part of that kingdom? There, you've all been trained in evangelism. But the reality is, is that we often forget that. You guys are a smart church. And yet, in the struggle of membership conversations from person one all the way through, you guys know the death of Jesus for your sins, but you forget that he was raised victorious. I think in about nine out of 10 conversations, I've had to remind you, well, what happened after he died? You see, the reality is, is you live in victory because Jesus was victorious. In the midst of trial and false teaching, John not only wrote this, apostle, uh, uh, this gospel, but he also wrote an epistle to a fledgling church. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, the last place I'm going to turn you. And he wrote this to them to give them encouragement in the midst of trial and false teaching, and he reminded them of Christ's victory. And this is the text that Ryan read earlier, but I just want to take one little piece of it. Take a look there at chapter 5, verse 1 in 1 John 5. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, meaning the King, the one who has come and conquered the kingdom of darkness and risen again and is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, ruling over his kingdom. Anyone that believes this has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. See, that's where all the considerate society of God's people comes out. If we love Christ, we're going to love one another. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Amen? Amen. Read that out loud with me in the ESV there. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So often we get it so backwards as Christians. We get kind of distracted, as Danielle was saying, and we get pulled into the way the world thinks, and we subconsciously think, if I obey the commands of Christ, 
then life will be easier because God will be on my side. But then life brings us trials and we think either I am not good enough at this whole holiness thing, so God's mad at me, or we think uh, God doesn't care, maybe he's not even real. But the reality is that if we have faith that Jesus died to make atonement for our sins, if we have faith that he rose victoriously as a sign that this world could not hold him, and if we have faith that he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, then we are born of God and those born of God will love God and love one another and see that his commandments to be that holy people are not burdensome. They flow out of the response we have to his amazing grace. And if we get this, if we have that faith, it will slowly but surely free us from the cycle of thinking we must respond to the world in worldly ways. In my counseling, it's amazing how many people in the midst of codependent relationships, I say to them one simple phrase, you realize that that person is that person and you're your person. And you don't have to respond even if they respond badly. And it's amazing how many of us as humans were like, wait, I don't have to participate in that cycle of breaking one another down and beating each other up. I can just pull back and I can be something different. Yes, Christian, you can. You can be something different. You can be the holy people that God calls you to. You don't have to be in the cycle of thinking that you must respond to the world in worldly ways. If they're self-protective, you don't have to be. You can be different and draw them to the kindness of Christ. And the second thing that it will do when we have this faith is that it will give us hope that Jesus has overcome the world and that one day that will not only be in the spiritual sense now, but in the physical sense as well. Jesus has overcome. Therefore, Jesus is coming again to fully overcome. Amen? Our freedom to obey Christ will flow freely from our faith through Christ that God has overcome the world. And so when trial and tribulation come, when we are acting our best to be like the people there in Deuteronomy 23, and we can't seem to break free from the world because the world is beating us up, we can actually say, I expected this. And in the midst of it, I can set my sights on the truth that today may be trial, but eternity will bring with it the promise of eternal life and resurrection. I have been depressed this week. My poor wife has had to deal with a depressed kind of slug. And as I was sitting there last night and going through this, I was thinking to myself, man, it's okay to be sad and depressed when you see the world, but it's not okay to forget the truth that Jesus is coming again. And he's coming to fully put in place what he's already started, which is a kingdom of holiness and love and righteousness and justice. And when we look at the trial and tribulation and say, not only did I expect this, but I know that something is going to happen that will fully overcome it. We can finally bring eternity into the present and have hope. Brother or sister, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and King today, I want to tell you that he wants to free you from that rat race of hurt and brokenness and dysfunction and trauma. He wants to tell you that life can be different. He wants to break you out of that. If you're a person who doesn't know Jesus in terms of a personal relationship with him and with his people, I want to draw you into that today. And I would love to talk with you afterwards. I'm going to be standing in the back during worship. Come talk to me about what it is to follow Jesus as a Christian. And we would love to disciple you and draw you in. If you do know Christ, take today to reset your mind on the fact that Christ has risen victoriously. Danielle put it perfectly. We get so distracted. But in this moment, even right now, and as we go into communion, as we sing, as we say the Apostles' Creed together, I want us to focus in and realize 
that Jesus has risen victoriously. That is a fact of history. And he will come again to put that victory fully in place. That is his promise. We're going to sing a song at the end of today, Come Lord Jesus. And that should be our daily cry. And as we cry that daily, we can also walk in the truth that he is coming again. And today is not something different than eternity. It is the beginning of eternity. And so our decisions and our walk, it needs to fall in line with that truth. For so many of you in here today, this week, this month, maybe even this year has been full of trial and tribulation and you are worn down as you fight against the grain to follow Christ and live life as the society of God's people. Some of you are even dealing with the fall and the fact that you're landscapers or farmers and you're like, man, I really wish I could reap this harvest without having to do all this extra work, amen? There is this reality that the world is beating us up. And yet Christ told us, guys, you can expect it. But in the midst of that, realize that I am with you, that I walk with you and weep with you and rejoice with you, and that he is coming again to bring his kingdom into fullness. What I believe that the Lord wants this church to know this morning, dear brothers and sisters, is that we need to take heart, keep the faith. God has overcome the world.